Welcome to Mediation Playbook, the podcast that provides winning negotiation strategies. Join us as we explore the world of holistic negotiation from experts across business and industry. Our guests will share with us their insights and draw on their experiences to provide you the techniques and tools you need to become a master negotiator. Now let's get started. All right. Well, we are here today with Jordana Thigpen, who is plaintiff's counsel and has an interesting perspective, I think, on negotiation of matters when working in that role. And so that's why I asked her to join me here today. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day here in LA. Fantastic. Good to hear. Let's go ahead and get started. If you wouldn't mind telling us all a little bit about your background and you know how you got to doing the work that you're doing now. Sure. So, you know, I'm I'm not a person that wanted to be a lawyer from the first day of my life. <laughs> I actually wanted to be a doctor. And, you know, when I was in school, I just the math and the science, it, it was that's a lot. You know, it's a long haul and you have to start so early. I moved schools a lot due to a variety of, of things in my life. And so, you know, by the time I got to college, I kind of already had developed a, an aptitude and a, and a love really for writing and research. So history was a natural fit for me. And from there, it's either academia <laughs> or, you know, grad school. And, you know, I, I really wanted to go to law school for the pure knowledge of the law. And I didn't really think at that point ever, like, I'm going to sit in an office and practice law. And this is now what I do. And I absolutely love it. I'm a trial lawyer. And I, I just feel like I was born to do it. So it was a long circuitous route, but I think I'm doing exactly what I'm meant to do is being a trial lawyer. I've worked in two branches of government and I've also had my own practice and worked for other people, other plaintiffs firms, a notable litigation firm called Kachet Petrie and McCarthy was the first private sector job that I had after clerking and working for the city of San Francisco. And, you know, Joe Kachet was, he's a mentor to me. He's, he's the foundation of my career, you know, as far as being a diverse plaintiff's lawyer, being someone that cares about justice, being an ethical lawyer, doing the right thing, and really caring for your clients and looking out for them. He's the one that set me on that path. So you've you've had a couple of different roles. You mentioned you've had some government roles. You've worked in a couple of private sector roles as well. What do you think really drives your work as an attorney? My My role as an attorney is to leave the justice system in a better place than it, I found it. And I try to carry that, that mentality over to my clients as well. Many of my clients, you know, they're I have small business clients. I've had, you know, institutional clients over the years, um, obviously, you know, government clients, but you know, the average person, the, the individual people that I represent, you know, that this might be their first experience with the justice system as far as being a plaintiff in a lawsuit, you know, and it's it's confusing. It's overwhelming. It's people don't you know often appreciate the length of time that it takes for cases to resolve. And sometimes, and you know, you start a case. You could be with someone. You know, two, three, four. I have a case right now. It's been pending seven years. I mean, it. You know, you for me, if I'm in a relationship with a client, I'm I'm there for the long haul. I'm there all the way through appeal. I'm there the whole way until we finish it and resolve it. And that's that's a little bit unique in your area, isn't it? I think, you know, a lot of people, they think that you have to specialize in one thing. So for example, and I, I will do this, I hire appellate consultants to help out with appeals, but I love writing my own appeals. And as the trial lawyer or the person who did the underlying work in the trial court, generally speaking, 
you know, I think it's important to have that person because we know the record, we know what happened and we know where it's going. I actually think it's really important for trial lawyers too to do appellate work now and then because people don't realize the mistakes that can be made. There's so many pitfalls that can happen. And look, I try to settle cases before they even get filed. I mean, nine out of 10 times, that's that's the case. It's important to have pre-litigation efforts, at least, even if you don't go to full mediation. Right. But you do have to have that that ability to threaten trial, to drive settlement. At least that's what I've seen a lot of times, right? I couldn't agree more. And that's been one of the really big problems with COVID. You know, it we were in such a good spot that with the Trial Delay Reduction Act, I mean, this is like a years long process. But if you look historically at the legislation that has been enacted to clean up the delay in the court systems or, you know, having a PI hub and kind of putting the PI cases over there and, you know, doing all these creative things that we've done, not just in the LA County Superior Court system, but in other counties as well in California, we were in such a great spot, you know, in 2019. I mean, we were finally getting on track, you know, cases were going to trial a year, two years, you know, and then we know what happened in March of 2020. So if the delay has been tough, it's tough, you know, and especially in San Francisco, I've had, I have a number of cases up there. I have a connection to the Bay Area and, you know, I've lived there at different points in my life, went to law school there. So I have a number of cases all over the state, but a lot in San Francisco. It's the delay up there is, is really tough. And it's because, you know, criminal courts have priority. They have a little different system there. They have master calendar, but yeah, it's, it's really tough with the delay with, with settling cases. I have definitely noticed a trend the past couple of years of we just don't have that leverage of, hey, we're all going to have to spend money here, right? And both sides need that. Yeah. Let me ask, is there a difference that you find? So you practice a fair amount still in, in San Francisco. Obviously, you, you're now down here in Los Angeles, have a practice down here. Is there a, a significant difference you find in terms of how the cases are handled? And I don't mean necessarily from a procedural standpoint or anything like that, but I mean more in terms of how a resolution comes about in the kind of attitudes and relationships with fellow counsel, either in the up in San Francisco, down here, or or in other places in California or elsewhere. I mean, is there a difference? perhaps caused by, perhaps exacerbated by geography that you've noticed in terms of the cases that you handle? That's an interesting question. I mean, I've definitely, in some smaller counties that I've worked in, I do feel like some attorneys have taken the perspective of like, well, I'm hometown, so I know all the judges. And so that's that's like a leverage point that they use. You know, I don't know that that's necessarily true anymore. The governor has appointed one of the most diverse benches in history as far as age, disability, gender, you name it. And it's been really refreshing to see, you know, that as we have a more diverse bench, right, there's not so much of that hometown advantage situation that is going on in in some counties. I think that's one point that I've noticed as a difference. I think it's more, it's not so much geography as different areas of law, right? So the employment bar approaches settlement one way, right? And business cases, we approach it so differently. You know, is there a difference between employment lawyers in LA versus employment lawyers in, in the Bay? And I mean, on both sides, defense and plaintiff. 
I think not so much anymore. I think because we have access to so many bar associations that we belong to, listservs, you know, where we can communicate with each other and people are so mobile now. I mean, I wouldn't be able to do the practice I do all over the state. You know, I wouldn't have been able to do this 10 years ago, right? You'd have to fly, take the depots. I mean, the video deposition has been wonderful for clients for cost saving. That's been both good and bad, right? Because on one hand, you still have the transcript costs. You know, you still have the cost as the leverage, but the gamesmanship of forcing people to fly across the country at a moment's notice and all that, that, that kind of behavior just, it's done. Yeah. It's funny. Yesterday I was talking with an attorney, very experienced attorneys been practicing maybe 30 some odd years. And he was telling me that the last in-person witness interview that he participated in was the day that it was down in, is the day that basically everything shut down for COVID. Both his office back in Los Angeles and the office that he was in in San Diego for this meeting were shutting down. And he and the witness and the assistant who was with them were the last three people to walk out of the San Diego office for the shutdown. And then that was it. And never back again, you know, the office, I mean, uh, you know, for a few months, years, depending where you were. But then... He hasn't had in-person witness interviews since then because everybody wants to do it over Zoom. And he's at the point where, you know, he obviously a little older, more experienced, has kind of that background and comfort around the in-person work. And, you know, he's itching for that. And I thought that was interesting. And we were talking a little bit about the dynamics of, mediation and settlement discussions when you're working with people over the phone, but also over Zoom. So, you know, one thing I've noticed, for example, is that a lot of, well, yes, certainly a lot of what were in-person meetings, depositions or, or just meetings or other sessions, however, whatever, have moved to Zoom. Okay. But also a lot of what were just phone calls before have moved to Zoom. So there's also an improvement, I feel like, in the communication in those phone call conversations, or what were phone call conversations before, because what were phone call conversations have now become Zoom conversations. And so you you see the person, you understand the body language of what's going on. I think it personifies people a little more than a disembodied voice, you know, coming out of a speaker or, or through a handset. But let me ask you, what, what are your thoughts on that? Have you seen a difference? Because you're working on cases up and down the state. What differences have you seen in terms of how cases are handled day to day? What is this brave new world meant for that? You know, it's like anything, right? There's pros and cons. Overwhelmingly, it's been positive, mainly just because of the cost savings, right? For hourly clients, I don't have to justify to them why it took you know, I had to build two hours. I had to go down parking. I have to worry about the 10. Did someone have an accident? Is there a problem? You know, I got to get my parking space. And then they took my parking away because they built a hotel there, you know? So it's like, you know, these types of coordination efforts are much simpler. Has LA Court Connect, and that's just the largest system that I deal with. Has it been perfect? No, (laughs) we all know it's it's had its issues, you know, but, you know, overwhelmingly it's been super positive as far as you know, just managing the caseload and managing the ability to work on cases. That being said, what's been difficult is, you know, some judges 
you know, you really need to see the body language. You really need to see those micro expressions, you know, and, and when you're in the courtroom, I mean, I just, I love being in a courtroom. You know, this is, this is, it just feels so natural, right. To be there. It's, it's our office, right. As a trial attorney. And there's so many things that happen at the court, even before I even go in and argue the motion, I'm there to witness and to experience and to learn what is this clerk like? What is the judge like? What are the other lawyers doing? How is the judge responding to people's arguments? That's something. And then also seeing other lawyers, seeing colleagues that I know or people I respect and walking up to them. Hey, you know, I've never met you. I've heard of you, you know, great argument, you know, passing on to, to someone. These are the types of interactions that we, we need and we thrive on that make our profession better as a whole. And, you know, it, it's hard not to have that. And it's hard even on Zoom. You can see that a little bit, but it, it's a little bit different. That's one thing. And, you know, some motions, though, I'll say I absolutely I love, love arguing summary judgment motions on Zoom <laughs> because I have the PDF with the bookmarks, right? So if you have a 500 page, 700 page, 800 page record, you know, which I do in a lot of motions, I, I, you know, it's wonderful to be able to see it and to be able to just call upon the evidence like, oh yeah, it's, you know, this is the citation, like it's wonderful. That being said, you know, again, that's a, that's a big motion. And so that's one where I especially want to gauge how the judge is reacting. So, you know, that, that's one thing as far as zoom depots, I love zoom depots and I, I hadn't taken an in-person deposition the entire time of the pandemic until January of this year, I had noticed a deposition to a city employee and the city employee showed up at my office. And I have a conference room. Yeah. Right. So I'm like, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. And my perception is like, oh, it, Mr. X is here. I'm like, what? So I went out and, you know, I'm like, okay, I reserve the conference room. I go in there, you know, I, I take it. And then the defense lawyer is like, I didn't know this was going to be in person. I'm like, well, I didn't either, you know? So we, I took his deposition and it was great because I could really see where he didn't understand things and, obviously I could control what he's looking at. I mean, that's, I know people have been reading notes and text messages during depots. We all know that this is going on. Right. And, you know, do you have anyone in the room with you? No. And then you hear someone coughing like halfway through, you're like, okay, I mean, just be honest, like, just, just say what's going on. Like with, you know, it's challenging because, you know, there's the, the old, Oh, can you turn the laptop around? Show me the room trick. I mean, it is that kind of stuff, but you're right at the end of the day, fundamentally, there's going to be that communication that occurs and you have to adjust for it. It's a little different in a depot situation or in court, you know, obviously in a mediation situation where it's, it's not the formalities of process. I have some more leeway. You know, you do have to worry about confidentiality issues. You, you address that though, you work through it. But fundamentally, there's only so much you can be doing to lock things down short of actually bringing people into a room. But that being said, I will say that, you know, I, it's one of the things I discuss with counsel when I have those pre-mediation conferences of what, you know, how are we going to get a settlement here? What are the, the actors like in terms of opposing counsel, in terms of themselves, in terms of their client, the other clients involved? And you'll find that there are certain personalities and certain types of folks. And I've just kind of Built this up slowly but surely, this uh, understanding of getting a sense of who is going to need to be in person to settle something and who is going to be able to settle something over Zoom, right? 
I found that interesting. Let me ask one last question on this. I know we've gone far afield from what we had talked about we were going to discuss, but I, I, I find this fascinating. So in terms of your clients, you've got a mix of clients. Sometimes you have clients who, as you said, aren't as familiar with the legal process. This is their first time. This is their first piece of comfort with the process. Let me ask you, how do you find their comfort level in terms of, and especially I'd like to say, you know, for those folks who are, they may not be as familiar. Okay. So I feel like we both spend a lot of time online on Zoom. We're very comfortable looking at the camera, right? And 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 having these conversations. What have you seen amongst your clients in terms of where their comfort level is? With that, both with the folks who have comfort previously in other contexts, but obviously litigation is an uncomfortable situation, and with the folks for whom all of it is new. Yeah. So what I try to do is I keep my clients extremely well informed. I if there's a a filing, a pleading, if anything happens significant, you know, with as far as correspondence between counsel, aside from scheduling, et cetera, I just forward it directly to them. And especially for my more sophisticated clients who are capable, you know, hired attorneys before, worked with me before, they know they're going to get a lot of emails. They're going to be getting everything forwarded to them. You know, oh, look, this is what's going on. That just saves time. I don't have to spend time, you know, writing up a letter, updating them. They don't have to spend their time to to think about and call upon and do the intellectual load of, you know, oh, I got to write Jordana. I haven't heard from her in a while. Nothing, you know, sometimes I, they do write and I say, oh yeah, and then there's not been much going on and I'll respond. But they know that there's probably nothing going on, you know, if they don't hear from me. So by the time we get to a mediation, typically, unless it's a pre-litigation, you know, and it's something that happens at the beginning. But even then I tell people that's a possibility, right? I set it up from the beginning, like, Here's kind of a framework, even when I'm talking to, and it's a retention, I explain generally the process. From there on out, it's kind of a continual process of explanation to them so that they understand what's happening to them. I think where people get in trouble sometimes with, with dealing with clients is they, they just don't keep them informed. And then the client is not only wondering what's happening with their life, with their case, but then they get a big surprise. They get a bill, they get an adverse ruling, which happens, you know, without us even. You know, it's it's of part time. of the, the business. Yeah, understood. I mean, to us, we get it, but it's very personal for, for many folks for obvious reasons. Right. And, you know, if you've established a rapport by then and you've kept someone informed, you can assist them in, in you know, resolving the disappointment of, of an adverse action. Also, especially for a plaintiff's attorney, like we, it's very you know, it's not personal. We obviously we're objective, which is why we're hired. And if it were totally personal, then we frankly shouldn't be representing that person. We're just too close to the issue, right? In some ways. But, you know, we do this because we care about our clients and we love representing individual people. We love helping them, right? So we're most plaintiff's lawyers, I believe, are sincere and and it's deeply felt that we want justice for our client because they've been wronged. And so we want to communicate with our clients, right? We want to be telling them what's going on, keeping them informed. And so I always give people kind of a little primer. If it's their Zoom depot, for example, you know, we have to talk about what, how they're going to behave when they're going to not to talk over, you know, I kind of give them the preview that I would give to a a deponent, you know, this, is this fair? We're not going to talk over each other, et cetera. 
And so same thing for mediation. Before the mediation, we have a discussion. I always schedule a call. Okay, let's go over the brief. Let's go over the demand. Let's talk about what's going to happen. Any questions? The most question, a lot of people I find, this is, this is probably 90% of clients if they've had no familiarity. They believe that this mediator is like a judge. Okay. Now, for some clients, and I'm sure you've seen this, it can be very useful that that is, that is what, not that anyone's being misled. That's not what I'm saying. Just that. Uh, no, I understood. But yeah. It's a more formal process, you know, and some clients, especially not all, because some, they understand that, you know, look, let the lawyer, you know, they want us to do the talking. They're too upset or they're nervous, or they just, whatever reason, they have all their own reasons, but some clients really want to tell their story. And even just being able to tell the story to the mediator is really such a, it's for someone else besides their lawyer that deeply cares for them and is assisting them the defendant who they, you know, have in a box, right. Or their friends and family who have already heard the story to be able to tell a professional, objective, neutral third party. This story is so meaningful to them. So I love, you know, seeing the different reactions and hearing people's questions and, and helping them explore what tactic or what I guess not a tactic, but what style is going to work for them. I think a little, even more so, then for some folks, it is telling their story to that neutral and that formal venue. Okay. But there are other folks also for whom it's having this story be listened to in that venue. And I've, I've noticed with some folks that will come in and they'll start to tell their story somewhat, but they're expecting to be cut off or they're expecting to not really be heard. They're expecting to be given, you know, a lecture or something similar about legal process. And when you when you sit and listen and start to ask them, tell me more about that, and like a uh, floodgates open up, right? And that can I've seen it happen several times where that can really make a settlement happen that was already, frankly, on the table in a sense, right? I mean, it wasn't there, but it was close enough. It was within reach before, but it wasn't capable of being accepted because they hadn't had that opportunity to really let go because they hadn't been listened to. And so it's a, it's a mixed bag in that regard of, you know, I mean, every case is different. It's so true. And I think one of the good parts of getting older and practicing more and more, which there are just so many things like about getting older now that I really appreciate. <laughs> I'm not afraid of getting older and, and practicing more. I think in our profession, especially it's very, it's one of the benefits is the longer that we do this work up, up to a point, uh, <laughs> you know, <Sure>. um, <laughs> up to a point, you know, but you know, it, the longer we do it, the, the better that we become because we're, as long as you also stay current, right? Because a lot of people think, well, I've been doing this since the nineties or I've been doing this. We all know people like this, that we, that we deal with lawyers, you know, there's some different judges, for example, that, you know, which I won't name, but you know, they have a method of doing something that they've been doing for many, many years. But meanwhile, the law has changed and they didn't stay up on it. It happens, right? Most of the time for judges, I'll say I've had an incredible experience with, with judges. I've, I've been lucky. I feel really lucky and privileged to just have so many amazing judges in that I've had in cases in front of trials in front of and motions in front of like just brilliant people that are doing this work. It, it's really it, it's really humbling to see the, the quality of the bench that we have. But in any event, I feel like 
you know, one of the benefits of getting older is realizing that, you know, a lot of people do, they just aren't being heard anywhere in their life. And if you can give them the benefit of being heard, being listened to, it's a revelation for them. You know, it's a revelation and, and it's meaningful for them. And even defendants counsel, you know, when you're at a mediation, I mean, they, yeah, that's true too. Right. They, they want their client story to be heard. Right. And yeah, it's one of the benefits of realizing the listening power. <laughs> so let, let me ask in terms of, you know, speaking of kind of staying current and, and, you know, moving forward with the times, but bringing it back to negotiation, how have you found yourself, what changes have you made in your negotiation strategies for negotiating virtually over zoom, over phone calls, things of that nature? What has worked for you and, and or what hasn't worked for you that you thought would work? So one thing that I've focused on the past few years, and this alludes to what I said a few minutes ago of preparing my clients, I feel like I have really mastered the art of preparing my client and my side for mediation, right? I'm there to, if I'm there and I've agreed to spend the money to be there, I'm there to settle the case. I'm not going to go crazy. I'm not there to play a game. I'm not there to run up a bill. I'm not there to spend six thousand, four, six, five, seven thousand dollars, three thousand, two thousand, whatever the number is that I don't have, right? And you know, or or rather, not that I don't have that I that I want to waste, that I want to throw away and throw away my client's money. And I'm not there to get there. And I've spent, you know, $6,000 to be there. And then someone's offering a top amount of $10,000. Like what? I mean, it, it, it's just, why, why it, to me, that says more about the attorneys than it does about that client. Because if the attorney it would have to have the conversation that I have with my clients, like, listen, we're never going to get a hundred percent, right? We're going to get something else. It's a question of, you know, and we're not going to say bottom lines at this point because we don't know. Let's just see. We're not going to say, you know, a top number. We don't, let's just see what happens. Right. And so that being said, I'm there, I'm there to settle. If the lawyer isn't adequately on the other side, preparing their client. So one thing, and this was something that had happened as a result of a, a recently successful mediation, but we had already had one as a pre-litigation. And this was early on in the pandemic. This was probably in, you know, 2021. I can't remember exactly the month, but it was late. It was fall 2021. And we went to pre-litigation and the individual, the individual did not prepare their client and then did a situation like I've just described. An extremely low amount was offered that was like, I think a thousand dollars or something over the amount that we paid to be there. I mean, like we don't work, it's not pro bono. We're not there. We're, we're not trying to make $10 million on every case, but because not every case is worth $10 million, but we're not there to make a thousand dollars. Okay. And spend, we already wrote the complaint. We did, you know, we did, we did, we had prepared ourselves for that pre-litigation. We thought this is great. It's great, you know, easy way for everyone to resolve. And the amount that we ended up offering and, and coming down to was so great. And I thought it would be accepted and it was not. The point is that, you know, now after that experience, and then later we ended up settling the case after winning a summary judgment for quite a bit more, quite a bit more on a factor scale than what we had originally been willing to do pre-litigation. And I, I really hope that they learned a lesson from that. Like you need to prepare if you're going to do a pre-litigation because we had to spend that money and that kind of made us think, well, we can't go back to mediation with them because, you know, so that's a, that's a roundabout way of saying 
what I'm going to focus on in the next couple of years is making sure that I have the conversation for any pre-litigation mediations of, listen, we're not in person. No one's committing to do, you know, to travel and fly around and do all this because we don't need to spend that money if we don't have to. But you guys have to understand, we're not going to get these low ball offers and we're going to go and show up and then it's going to be a waste and everyone's going to be upset. So you need to have this conversation with your client. Have you had it? And, you know, not saying it in precisely those words, but essentially like we're both here to settle, right? Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I think that's right. I think that's also, you know, that's something that's uh, on the mediator as well to have that conversation with all counsel involved as to what are the conversations you've had with your client? And sometimes that gets into discussion of numbers, which is great when that happens because it can actually jumpstart the process so the session's more productive. More often it doesn't, which is perfectly fine and appropriate, but I know that I will get a sense from that conversation as to what they're going to be offering, what's coming in the session, how it's going to start off. And there are times when that helps to understand, okay, this can be a productive session, even though it'll start off with a ridiculously low or high number in as an initial offer or, or counteroffer that would otherwise be insulting right? Yeah. Because of that, because of having that understanding and having done that homework as to what the conversations have been with that counsel has had with their client beforehand, I know whether this is an insulting offer and this is not going to go forward. And so let me adjust expectations accordingly. So I don't waste people's time because the other side is just not interested or it's an insulting offer because of it's being so low or high, but it, we're going to be moving off that shortly, right? They just need to do that for posturing purposes. And I can have that conversation when I go into the other room or rooms because of that context. Without that context, though, you don't really know what does this mean? Is it truly that this is what they're thinking, that they're going to be settling this for some four-figure, five low five-figure amount? Or do they have realistic expectations? No, it's going to be getting into the low six figures, but they just don't they don't want to break that barrier, right? So that the, right. the only way they know how to protect themselves negotiation strategy-wise is to, well, let me just try to anchor. And a lot of people anchor poorly, but that we could do a whole nother podcast episode on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would actually be a great one. I would like to watch who you have on that. I would watch that one for sure. <laughs> it's good to know. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to make a note. We'll put that one together. Let me ask, what is one commonly held belief in the plaintiff's bar about negotiations? We can make it broader. What's one commonly held belief about negotiations that you disagree with? This, you know, the incremental moves is really frustrating. It's We often sit on our side. Generally, I'm representing plaintiffs. Even when I do business cases, I'm generally representing plaintiffs. I do defense now and then. You know, my clients, I have a few small business clients. They run, you know, small, mid-sized businesses. They they get sued for various things. I don't do plaintiff's employment work. That's, or I should say, I don't do employment defense is what I mean. That's the only uh, part of defense I don't get because I'm a CELA member, which is California Employment Lawyers Association. But for other things I do, you know, contract dispute or whatnot. And generally speaking, I'm in my plaintiff's side. I'm in my plaintiff's room. And the incremental moves are frustrating. You know, they're frustrating for our clients. Clients don't understand. And then, you know, midpoints, they're like, and then it's midpoint of the midpoint. And then the client 
you know, the tents are just like, what, what is this? Like, this is, this is like a crazy system, right? And they, they don't understand it. And that's, you know, again, that's kind of why we also spend the time in, in front explaining that process to them. Like, you're going to be hearing at the midpoints. And then, you know, if they haven't heard it yet, then, or there wasn't, you know, still, we explain it again right then in the moment so that they're, okay, remember we talked to the midpoints, here we are, we're as a midpoint. Yeah. So that's the incremental moves and the signaling you know, those things, that signaling actually can be useful. That could be useful because, you know, then people start to feel more comfortable. I feel like when the signaling verbiage comes out, but the the incremental moves is really frustrating. That's why I try to come in at a very reasonable number, you know, which again, it's an opening demand, right? So I'm coming in, but I'm, there's not, I'm giant moves. Millions of dollars are being cut off of the move. I just do not do it that way because I feel like I'm there. I want my word to be taken seriously and not just when I'm doing my moves, but with from start to finish, because I want them to know that if I say I'm not coming back to mediation again, then it's going to mean something at that point. Right. And if someone's coming in with a $25 million opening offer on a case that's worth under a million is that going to get the job done? I mean, and these, insu- if it's an, presumably, if that's the type of negotiation, there's an insurance adjuster involved, they're not going to take that seriously either. So I think it's so important to be taken seriously. And maybe it's overcompensating on my part, but I do feel like, you know, the word has to mean something and, and people have to know she means what she says. Like she'll go, she'll take the case to trial and that's it. Like then, and she'll appeal she, and she'll win you know, and, and I do. Right. So do I win every appeal? Unfortunately, I haven't yet. <laughs> I just won one though. So that's worth something. But that's interesting to talk about, you know, having what you say means something, but that also means the flip side of it is doing the homework on the beforehand so that you have the preparation, you know, that you can justify, Hey, this is what our number is. This is why our number is this. And there's a reason to stick to the position, right? Two thoughts on that. The first one is that 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 really, I find that that gives strength to your bargaining position. It also allows you more freedom because when you do move, you have something it's tied to because there's going to be movement, right? You're not going to come in, this is my number and that's my number throughout the entire session or it's not going to settle and you're going to go try. That's right. The second thing is that when you take an unjustified stance of, you know, a false best and final offer, right? Then that's going to, you're going to, it's going to move, you're going to move. And then you've moved from your best and final. And now you, you can't use that card again, right? Oh, okay. I know I said three hours ago, best and final, but this is actually our best and final, right? Or I know I said best and final that day at the, at the settlement, and then you walk away and then, you know, discussions start up another week or so later and okay, this is our new best and final, right? And so I find that I will often, I really take pains not to have any side use that kind of language because unless there's something that really is a reason for it to be best and final, right? And that's something to explore, I think, before the mediation session. But when that, when you know that, that's fine. Then you can adjust accordingly. But I do find that a lot of times people want to throw that out a lot earlier than is appropriate. 
And I find it more that counsel wants to throw it out earlier than it's appropriate, more so than the clients. I would say in probably about a third of the mediations I handle, I think the client is, I don't want to say more sophisticated, but a better negotiator because they're more principled. Maybe that's not the right way to describe it, but they know what they're negotiating for and they're sticking to that on principle. Now, sometimes, many times there are people that stick to it just because that's how they think negotiations should go. But I find that when you have a client who has really thought through the why, you get a lot more from them in terms of thinking of different ways to resolve the case. Yes. I don't know if you had similar experience yourself or, or what you found. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, depending on whether it's, you know, what type of, of the client it is, have they had this familiarity before, but most clients, you know, they haven't thought through what it's going to look like to go all the way through a trial and potentially beyond. What is the impact going to be on their life? The idea of having money in the hand, having a resolution, being able to move on and doing mediations at certain times of the year or on certain days obviously impacts that as well. You know, mediations at the end of the year, you know, it's like people are in a different mode and mentality than they are in, you know, September and October when it's all guns blazing, people are back to school, back to work. And, you know, I was, it's interesting. I was talking to someone the other day that's a, a trader, you know, I, they do, I don't know, they do day trading. Okay. But they do, they have like a program that they've attended and they, you know, they, they deal with stocks. I do not deal with any of those things. I used to do securities litigation. So I, I stay away from all of this, but in, it, in any event, the person is, is pretty sophisticated with this and, and makes a living doing this. And the person was explaining to me some of the cycles of the market. And it's quite interesting because they kind of tracked the way that I've seen a cycle of likelihood of settlement of cases at certain times of the year. And I thought it would be so interesting if someone's taken the time, and I don't know if anyone's done this kind of analysis, but it would be extremely valuable data to have that. I don't know, but that is that is interesting. And just thinking about it, just, you know, first impression here. Yeah, I mean, I could probably chart out based on my experience, and I suspect if we gather enough data points, enough other council folks with experience in this, there is something to that. I mean, I could see there being something to that, right? I don't know. That's interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna look into that. Well, like for example, the person was indicating that the market is kind of flat normally in the summer, which makes total sense because. If the litigation cycle is somewhat flat, I generally will have cases scheduled for trials in certain times of the year because the judge will fill in the first available, which is always during the holidays, right? Because no, nobody was <laughs> not available, Your Honor. You know, they, everybody says that, right? And I mean, I'll take whatever, right? Because it's probably going to get moved anyway. There's going to be something going on, right? But with federal court, obviously, that's not an option. But you know, with state court. So that being said, the other time is right after January, like January 3rd, January 4th. I've started many trials. I'm like, that's fine. I'll spend the Christmas. I don't care. You know, then are the holidays, you know, New Year's, et cetera. Then summer, you know, they always want to put in the summer and then people with kids, they're going on vacation, right? They're doing weddings, graduation. Yeah. So it makes sense that the market is simultaneously flat, but I'm interested to know, like, I wonder how many settlements are going on during that time. I mean, I, we just take first available, right? That everybody's available and that we, as counsel, we're, we're not even thinking on those terms, right? 
But I, I wonder, I do wonder, that'd be interesting to know and if there might be some kind of advantage to be gained or, or efficiencies to be gained. I'll tell you one funny story about, you're talking about, you know, the judges will want to schedule a trial whenever, it, just first available and, you know, obviously holiday weeks are wide open on, on many calendars because of that. I have a partner that I worked with who had an experience when she was a younger attorney where she was challenged by a judge. Now, you know, of course, oh, I already have a pre-planned vacation. And she was challenged to produce for the judge proof of this pre-planned vacation. This had been booked already. Okay. And that was, that had been maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 years before I worked with her. And it was such a scarring experience. I'm not kidding you. She had her assistant, her legal secretary, regularly had vacations booked, refundable tickets for certain times of the year, just to wherever, just to have that prepared. And then it, the secretary would go, oh yeah, no, then we go and cancel it, you know, and was in charge of tracking, making sure that everything was fine. But, you know, had a, a fair amount of money sitting out there on the firm's credit cards for these tickets. And she, she was so traumatized by that experience, by that judge. Now, you know, I don't know what was going on with that judge, but that's a separate issue. But we've all experienced that kind of a jurist. So, well, today, you know, we're we're almost at time here, and I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I do appreciate your coming on the podcast here with us. But let me ask you: we have one question that we do ask of everybody on the show. So, tell me, what is one moment in pop culture that uh, you know, either a movie scene or a TV show or, or song lyric, anything that? Your experience as a lawyer has ruined for you. I mean, there's a couple things that came to mind. I mean, first of all, my husband really likes Law and Order, and you know, I loved I loved criminal law in law school. It was one of my favorite best classes. But I just, you know, I did not want to put people in jail for certain crimes, and specifically for you know drug crimes, minor drug crimes, and I didn't want to. I also didn't want to have be part of a system that a person is clearly guilty. And then my work is responsible for getting that person off. And I, I know that's a very simplistic way of talking about criminal law, but, and criminal lawyers, defense lawyers would of course disagree with me, right? Like that's not what we do. You know, we're, we're defending against the state and like, we're defending the constitution. We're defending your rights. And I completely agree with that aspect of it as well. But nonetheless, I kind of had these black and white moral quandary in my mind. So I kind of, I clerked anyway, and I, I loved trial work. So I was like, you know, I love civil law. I love it. I love all different, there's many different parts that I love. So that was kind of my natural segue into it. But anyways, my husband loves Law and Order. And so he watches it a lot. And God, you know, this Sam, I don't even know his last name. He's like the DA, the DA, Sam. Sam Wasserman? Yeah. That, yeah. He screams at the judges. He's like, your honor. I mean, he's like fighting with the judge. I'm like, who does this? No one acts like this. Like you, you would be disbarred for that behavior. Like that is so out of control. And a lot of clients think that. And then another thing they do, and this happens in movies, TV, civil, criminal, it doesn't matter. Any lawyer show. They just walk right up and they just hang out right there on the, uh, on the jury's gallery on the, they put their arm on the furniture on the wood, you know, and, and then they walk up to the witnesses like, you're no. like, I always ask to approach and I think in state court, it's like, you know, a little bit more informal than it used to be. But I always ask, because I practice equally in federal court, I, about 50% of my practice is in federal court. 
So federal court, like I would never just walk around and cruise around. Like, of course, I'm asking permission for everything, you know, and I've always been overly formal because I, I think it, it brings a formality to the process and that people, you know, remember what they're doing and why they're doing it. So that's, those are two things. And then I think the other, the, I know it's, you said one, but I, there was something else too, that, that when you, when I was thinking about this question, I thought, God, you know, like what is one thing? And I don't know, just probably most of all, and I have to explain this to clients a lot is it is not going to resolve in two weeks or one day, like it does in yeah. the movies. <laughs> This is not wrapping up in one hour with commercial breaks. Yeah, we are here for the long haul. Oh my God, that's definitely the, the time element, you know, but I mean, I knew that going in, obviously, but like, it, it's something I have to explain all the time. Clients like, what? Another year? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. They're like, how long does the appeal take? And I'm like, don't worry. It goes by fast. It comes by fast. Yeah. It, it's, it's a lot of her. It's a, it's a lot of hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. In the process, yes. the yeah. Wheels of justice do—they turn slowly, but they do turn, is what I always say. Yes. Well, that's great. Okay. So what what I'm hearing is really to sum it up is your view is look, be prepared, prepare your client, prepare yourself in terms of the offers that you're going to be making in your negotiation, and then stick to that. Right. Have have a principled reason and and stick to the principles that brought you to that offer. Yes. Be sincere and be there to do business. We're there. We're- be sincere. That's a more succinct way to put it. I like that. Yeah, that's be better. Sincere. <laughs> we're here to do business. We're here to make a deal. You know, that's the vast majority of people are, are there to do that. No, I can guarantee you that no plaintiff's lawyer is there to waste money and they are not there because they're thinking, ah, ha, ha, I'm going to make them incur attorney's fees. Yeah. Yeah. No one's thinking that. We just want right. to get a deal done. So, Trudea, do you have anything coming up or anything you'd like to promote while while we have you here for listeners who want to learn more? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. So, I serve on the board of the California Lawyers Association's executive executive committee for the litigation section. So, it's a really long segue, but we used to be, as people may know, the the sections used to be affiliated with the California State Bar, and then we were separated by the legislature, you know, a few years ago, and so we. There's now CLA, which is California Lawyers Association, and then there's the state bar. And anyone who's not already a member of the litigation section should definitely join. We're the largest bar association in the state. And I've served on the executive committee now. I was in this prior, I was on the committee for the administration of justice with the state bar. And then when we we were moved under the litigation section. So then I was chair of that. And then I became litigation section executive committee, which is, again, basically like the board of the litigation section. And I'm secretary this year, so I'll be chair in four or three years. So secretary, then treasurer, then vice president, vice chair, then chair. Yeah, so in in three, four years. So I'm always on the lookout, by the way, for any statutes that need to be amended. So I have a a whole list going. And now that I'm, you know, have a bit more time, I've tried to take on a few less cases and things and try to make more time for my professional activities in the coming year, coming two-year cycle and working up to being chair. I'm really working on legislation. So there's several pieces of legislation that I'd really like to see and involving the Discovery Act and other things that are bipartisan efforts. These are not, you know, oh, it's going to benefit plaintiffs only or it's defense only oriented. These are really bipartisan things. And that's what I'm looking for. So anybody that has something like, hey, there's a conflict, there's a code section that's defective, there's something maybe even in the arbitration, you know, statute. I mean, we saw some recent activity in that regard, right? So 
and cases come up all the time that say, we need guidance here from the legislature. So anything at all, I'm open book to be emailed. And, and I love hearing from people because I'm trying to make a giant collection and I do a lot of writing about this. And so that's one thing is we have our litigation summit in April next year. It's April, I believe, 24th and 25th in Long Beach. So anyone in, anyone can come from all over the state. We rotate between Northern and Southern California. And the litigation and it's the litigation and appellate summit. And it's open for registration starting probably early next week. The link will be up. Okay. So by the time this uh, episode airs, people will be able to go check that out for the uh, California Lawyers Association litigation summit. Yes. And we have an early bird discount and we have amazing panelists every year. And I do a panel every year. I've done it for several years on all the cases and new code sections for state court that have passed in the past year that are affecting civil practice. Good to know. Yeah, I've I've been in some past years and it's it's a good event. It's wonderful. Looking forward to that. Thank you. It's our signature event. So yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. great. <laughs> well thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And for our listeners who are interested in learning more, do you have a website or, or an address they should go to to check out? I am working on my website as we speak. It's been a long, a long uh, journey, <laughs> but I have, I have a LinkedIn. <laughs> we'll get that link in the show notes then. Thank you. So, all right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for tuning in. If you found our show valuable, please subscribe to our YouTube channel for exclusive video content. We love hearing our listeners' thoughts and suggestions on guests or topics for future episodes. So please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or comment on Spotify, and we will catch you on the next one.